This is Genevieve Lang. You are hopefully on your way to this evening's performance or this afternoon's performance of Monteverdi's Vespers with the extraordinary company that is Pinchgut Opera. The intention with this pre-concert talk, this little podcast, is that you should feel, you know, equipped to sit down and come at the music from perhaps a more informed place. To help me do that, artistic director of Pinchgut Opera, Erin Helliard. Erin, Monteverdi and his Vespers, I know it's a work that's been very close to your heart for a long time. Where did your relationship with that, with this particular piece of music start? My first uh, exposure to the Vespers was when I was a graduate student in Canada, in Montreal, and I played it with some early music nerds, and that was really exciting, some early music geeks, and we did it in a one-to-a-part setting. Which means what, one-to-a-part? So one-to-a-part is an aspect of historical performance practice in which rather than having, for example, a chorus of 40 people sing, just four people sing the four lines. So, for example, you could do Handel's Messiah with just four singers, but there's not much evidence that that ever happened. But there is a lot of evidence that... Uh, Bach, for instance, performed a lot of his sacred music one, two apart. And there's a lot of evidence that um, Monteverdi, should he have uh, approached this work as a performance, would have also probably expected it to be a one, two apart performance. So I had this wonderful time playing it with these musicians in the early 2000s when the one, two apart version was still a bit unusual and people were more doing the massed voice version of the Vespers, which is equally as wonderful and beautiful. And what are you doing today? So for Pinchgut's performance, uh, which everyone is just about to listen to, uh, is actually a one, two apart performance. So we have, you can do the entire Vespers with just eight singers. There is one movement that has 10 voices but two of the parts are a sort of plain chant in very, very long notes. So it seems almost that you can't even sing them if you did have those voices. Um, rather, you assign those to instruments. Two choirs of four and eight singers all up. Um, and then we've also got one to a part for the broken consort, which is the name you give to a whole bunch of different instruments. So Monteverdi is quite clear in the score about it. We have cornetti which are these beautiful zucchini-like instruments they sound like the human voice amazing they don't sound like zucchinis they don't sound like zucchinis <laughs> and then we've got uh some violins the violin family and also some sackbuts, which are like um, early trombones. So we'll talk more about the music itself in a little bit but i wanted to touch on monteverdi's life because he spent the first big chunk of it really not writing sacred music at all he was working in the court of mantua wasn't he that's right yeah and it wasn't really the best of conditions ultimately was it no like many composers of the time he seemed to have chafed under um, the onerous duties that were put upon him and court composing was was a tough gig you know in the 17th and the 18th centuries because you had to provide music it was basically like being a living ipod for your prince you know it's like bring me music um, and it just Not had to that be music, exactly the other music, the other music. <laughs> and of course they valued novelty. You know, you couldn't you couldn't reuse music um, as much as you might think. So uh, composers like Monteverdi and also Mozart is another one who chafed under um, courtly duties uh, had to provide music for the, the the chapel that was actually part of the court as well as all of the other. Um, courtly uh, the courtly calendar there were name days they had birthdays there were weddings and so it was a very busy time for Monteverdi and Duke Gonzaga he as I understand it had a fairly competitive streak so 
he was because he knew Monteverdi was the real deal. He, despite Monteverdi's sort of um, pleadings with him to be released from service, the Duke was conscious that Monteverdi's presence in his court gave his court, you know, of Mantua a higher standing. There was this sort of rivalry that was going on. I'm aware that, you know, the Duke told him what to write, when to write, who to write for, and, and, uh, and even controlled, you know, who Monteverdi might marry. So That's right. to live under that kind of oppression would have been something very uncomfortable, um, certainly in the long term, and it had an effect on Monteverdi's own physical health, as did the swampy surrounds of, of Mantua at the time. So there's this beautiful story, and I'm sure you know it, of, of Monteverdi tucking a particular score under his arm and heading to Rome. That's exactly right. So I should mention at this point that so much of Monteverdi's music is lost. You know, we, this, not only was he the greatest, one of the greatest composers of the Western world, but a lot of his music doesn't exist anymore. We only have three operas. We know that he wrote many more. There's some sacred music that is also missing. But yes, the story you mention is, is the circumstances of the Vespers in that he, in order to escape Mantua, he was looking for a job at in Rome, in the Papal States. So that's going from sort of the secular employment into sacred employment. Why would he have wanted to make that move? Yeah, so, well, exactly. So Rome at the time, and we should remind ourselves that Italy didn't exist yet. It was just a conglomeration of very sort of loosely organised fiefdoms and papal kingdoms and so forth. And so in the Italian peninsula, uh, which is what I like to call it because it... uh, it, it makes much more sense at the time. Rome was the expensive city. Rome was where all the money was, all those cardinals dripping in jewellery and gold. And um, uh, so if Monteverdi was to get uh, a gig there, not only would he have superior musical resources, great orchestras, great musicians, but very good living standards as well. And so the Vespers was published and dedicated to the Pope at the time. But as you know, his job interview didn't go very well. Well, they didn't meet. Well, exactly. <laughs> to nail the That's right. <laughs> and there was a representative from uh, Duke Gonzaga's court in Rome at the time. Spying. Spy, effective. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he was sent to spy. No, but, but I think there was a moment. There yeah. was a moment. Monteverdi had gone to Rome in the cover of darkness, effectively, wasn't making use of the court's official lodgings in Rome and was staying at an inn nearby or something. An Airbnb, Airbnb. of the, <laughs> the 1610s. <laughs> And this representative spied him, spotted him, and Monteverdi was rumbled. So he sort of had to turn tail, go home, tail between his legs. And uh, a couple of years later, the Duke died. The court, you know, um, accounting books were opened. Not much money left. The Duke's son, the new Duke, said, well, we've got to get rid of a lot of uh, our employees. And in fact, specified, I read somewhere, that Monteverdi should be told of the cessation of his employment in in as public a way as possible. Yeah, humiliating, wasn't it? It's such a different uh, way people were dealt with. I mean, it was the same for Mozart. He had this humiliating exit from service because they were sort of seen as vassals, as servants. So then I guess Monteverdi was licking his wounds for about 12 months and then another job opportunity came up. Where did he go? He went to San Marco in Venice, St. Mark's, uh, the, the biggest one of the biggest cathedrals um uh, in the Italian peninsula at the time. Amazing place. I've never been to Italy, Genevieve. Did you know that? I know. No. <laughs> I have never been to Italy. Always wanted to. Now, of Mama course, COVID. I, I know. COVID-19 is hit, and I, you know, I'm not sure when I will be able to go, but I've been in my head, 
And I know many of our listeners have probably been to Venice and they've actually probably gone inside San Marco, but I've always wanted to because, of course, it's an ancient building. You know, it dates back for hundreds and hundreds of years, even before it had been, you know, uh, built for, I think, in the 1100s. So it was a plum job for Monteverdi. And yes, he got, um, I think, on the strength of the Vespers, the publication of that, it's a bit of a calling card. Uh, he lived the rest of his life there. And, of course, he also worked in opera whilst he was in Venice and, of course, wrote um, The Return of Ulysses and Popea for public theatre, which was just starting up there in the 1630s. And now that you've raised the topic of opera, it's a beautiful way to just dive straight in to the music. The opening of The Vespers, for me, I, what I'm looking forward to personally is the, the anticipation. I'm sitting in my seat now in Angel Place or in the Melbourne Recital Centre, Maybe I'll fly between to hear it twice. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but I'm sitting in my seat and I know you're about to come out and stand the orchestra and take your bow and then turn back to the performers on the stage, raise your hands and begin this extraordinary moment. It's one of the most amazing moments in musical history, I think, the beginning of the Vespers. Um, here is an example of something that's recycled and uh, Monteverdi probably remembered his triumph earlier at the court at Mantua when he premiered the very first opera that we ever know. You know, I mean, Monteverdi was the great innovator. Why I describe him as such a, um, uh, one of the greatest uh, composers of all time is that he innovated in every genre he turned his hand to. So he invented opera, basically. And in innovating with opera, he chose to begin his opera with this amazing Toccata or Tucket, which is the beginning of Orfeo, and he uses the same sort of busy motifs in the beginning of the Vespers, but he then adds the human voice to it in this extraordinarily massive sort of sound, which uh, stays on one tonality for quite a while with just all these busy moving parts in the middle. And it's quite spectacular. It's like um, uh, a, a sort of enormous uh, palette that you see in front of you. And in fact, the most wonderful thing about the Vespers is from this very large beginning with every instrumentalist and vocalist participating, Monteverdi runs the gamut of different textures, different genres throughout the Vespers. He doesn't keep it as one texture, but rather sort of vacillates between them. And so in a way, the even though the Vespers is unusual because it doesn't, it does not... Um, conform to any liturgical vespers we know. So it's not really a, a recipe book for a religious service. It's more like a resource book of sacred music, which you could then, uh, which demonstrates his enormous skill in sacred music, which is why I think he was, uh, well, not only did he get the job at San Marco, but was hoping to get a position in Rome. And it's, he just hooks you from that very Amazing. first moment. It's between the eyes kind of music and experience takes you out of yourself. That's my experience of it, at least. Can you highlight for us a couple of other um, musical moments that might really grab us in the same way? Well, the, the next one in the cycle, which happens just a couple of movements later, is is the extreme antithesis of that glorious, sublime architectural sound. And that's a piece called Nigra Sum from the Song of Songs. And it's uh, a beautiful um, depiction of a handmaiden of Jerusalem and the text is sort of black but beautiful uh, I am. And we've often wondered what does that mean, this, this reference to her skin colour, when it actually seems to refer to the fact that she's of lowly status, she's outside in the sun a lot. So this person is blackened by the sun. And so it's a wonderful um, 
discussion of humility. So it begins in very low register, but rather than having the massed effect of all the instruments and all the voices, Monteverdi just pulls it back to one solo voice and then just the accompaniment of uh, the chordal instruments. And this was this new texture that he basically invented called monody, which for all of those people listening is so simple. It's literally just a tune with some chords underneath it. And it might sound quite simple to us now, but it was a huge innovation of the day and it came from opera. So immediately we have this sacred music, this sound, and then we have this sudden uh, close-up, if you will, to use a sort of filmic analogy of just one instrument and one voice. And throughout the Vespers, Monteverdi is, is masterly at pulling focus, as it were. You have these large, large tutti effects and then much smaller effects. Um, and he also plays with the, the, the sense of a sacred space. And I often describe it as sort of the original surround sound. So there are moments of polychoral imitation where different groups respond to each other. And we'll do our very best to do some of those echo effects as Monteverdi indicates them in both City Recital Hall and Melbourne Recital. As you're yeah. describing it, Erin, I'm in San Marco. I have been there. <laughs> Lucky you! <laughs> and I see the enormous mm. space, the grandeur of it, but then also in those moments where he pulls focus like a single candle on the altar. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh, it's so beautiful. Fun. And it's that sense, isn't it, of music that hangs in the air. Um, like with incense. A, yeah, exactly, like incense. So it's a really sensual piece, the Vespers, because you can, you can sort of feel and touch it and smell it in those ways when you start to think about um, some of the circumstances in which it was born. You can follow the surtitles along. You'll, we have the surtitles which give us the text, and that gives you a deeper appreciation for how Monteverdi sets the words. But you can also just shut your eyes, lay back, let the music wash over you. It's a bit like a sonic bath. 